today's episode, I'm joined by Alia Abidi. Based in London, she works with Plan International to protect deployable children in emergencies. Most of her work has been in Europe, but she's also worked in North Africa as well as the Middle East. Throughout this episode, we'll talk about the relationship between governments and refugees, stories from her time in the field, and COVID-19's effect in migrant settlements. Alia worked on the Greek island of Lesbos, as well as mainland Greece from 2015 to 2017, at the peak of when refugees were coming through the region. Taking in such a large amount of refugees can be extremely hard on the resident population and government, especially when the host country itself is so fragile. Island, and I know that um, the Greek government definitely had issues with a lot of the refugees coming in. Could you talk a little bit about your Greek experience? Yeah, again, so that's the thing, like the, the human capacity for solidarity and support, I think, is so immense. A lot of Greek people in 2015 was so welcoming and assisting and providing what they could I mean you know you'd have stories of of Greek people giving people lifts um, you know cooking meals giving clothes just really pitching in and still today you find these amazing Greek people running incredible initiatives Um, and I think unfortunately what tends to happen is that you know over time there is a fatigue of course, because these these refugee contexts become protracted over a number of years. It's always a combination of, you know, what has the government done to really support their own people through this difficult time, as well as the refugee population. So I think, you know, there's a there's a broader politics of that finds itself manifested in, in what we see in Greece. It's really hard for host communities to maintain levels of support when their governments aren't able to hold them up as well. Greece is generally not considered the final destination for most refugees. It's a very transitive space and acts more as a channel to the other European nations. The bridge is the island of Lesbos, with many arriving at this first stop by crossing the Aegean Sea from Turkey. However, this journey to get to the island isn't an easy one. Engines cutting out and drifting for hours, or even being physically pushed back by Turkish and Greek Coast Guard, are just some of the problems refugees can encounter. Alia believes that the government interference by the Coast Guard is just to make the passage even harder, to make it as difficult as possible for refugees to travel. Smugglers also benefit from these unsafe migration routes, forcing many to pay them a high price for a ride across. Stories of children dying and families lost at sea are more common than one would think getting into these kinds of boats is is not because people have other options it's because they actually don't have options to arrive safely at at a different country to seek asylum and the reason that this journey is so dangerous is partly because of the smuggling business and the way that it is it's a business so they will make as much money as they can and put as many people in a boat as possible Um, and these boats then really never up to standard um, at all Um, so the whole process is very unsafe um, and the whole process of having to to arrive at a shore where you can claim asylum that's a really risky process Um, once you're at sea anything can happen um, and these are really vulnerable people already. So when when I was there and we were, people were arriving and, and at that time it was hundreds and hundreds of people arriving um, within one day um, to the shores of Lesbos. And you would see, you know, injured as well amongst the, the people arriving, you know, families really carrying not just their young, but also their, their vulnerable and elderly. And, and, um, and so, you know, you would see all these amazing things of people who would survive. Unfortunately, we also have to remember the people who don't survive that journey. Um, and there are there are hundreds of lives lost in the sea. 
if you remember, um, Germany has said that they would accept a million refugees. Um, the borders were open, so Greece was very much a transit country, so people would arrive and they would immediately know that they were headed to a different country to Germany or you know at that time hardly anyone spoke about seeking asylum in Greece it was very much that they would continue there's so many people that I remember meeting along the way um, there would be days when we would hear of, of, a, of a shipwreck and, and the lives that had been lost um, but then there were also days when um, actually one really powerful memory I have um, working on the shore was that it was quite common at that time for in the chaos when you're getting onto a boat to be divided as a family um, and so one really strong memory that I have is a dad and three of the kids had arrived it was very typical at that time for people to arrive on the shore and then just you know very quickly move off the shore into the into the land um, and I just noticed that they weren't doing that and they were still looking out at the sea and so you know when I talked to them they was he was the dad was explaining that he's waiting for his wife and, and the other kids um, who they got separated from and they were on a different boat now obviously there's no knowledge of of which boat wh where they'll land where you know if they'll come today or not um, we just helped them to basically stay with us for a while like we had a um, I was working with Lighthouse Relief at the time and we had a very small um, camp along the shore um, and so I remember just like waiting with them and and I just remember that this this dad was just you know, sitting on the bench just staring out at Turkey and just waiting and then the next day and going over to them in the morning and they were still just you know looking out waiting it must have been a really hellish night for them um, and thankfully somehow the, the mother and the the other child did arrive on along the same stretch um, of shore and they were they were actually reunited um, and so you know it just shows you how fragile that situation is that people can be separated and, and then it's really not guaranteed that they'll meet up again so yeah there was a lot of a heartbreak but then a lot of like thank god people are safe they've arrived During her time in the DRC in Uganda, Alia worked specifically with internally displaced South Sudanese. And to those who don't know, internally displaced persons are refugees who are displaced within their own country. In our conversation, Alia emphasizes the point that, regardless if you're crossing a border or forced to move to a different city, losing your home is still really difficult. Do you have any um, memorable experiences talking with a refugee one-on-one -on -one after they'd come off the shore? I do remember, you know, I mean, really, I mean, this is very, this was really when things were at the height of emotions in 2015 and the relief on people's faces when they would make it. It was also like letting go of a lot of emotion at once because people really felt like this was a safer place for, that they had finally arrived to. And I think, you know, holding all those emotions was quite, was quite must have been quite tough so when people arrived it was often like a, a kind of like a release um and so there's a couple of things that really stuck with me like um uh, one I remember it was an incredible time actually like I remember one volunteer who was from Sweden but he had Kurdish uh, roots um from this place in in Iraq and um he he happened to meet somebody who um, and I just remember watching this exchange from from nearby and he happened to meet somebody who um, uh, was from the sim similar place and when he said oh I'm from my family's from that place as well this this man just broke down and he said it's gone it's all gone and he just broke down in tears 
um, because I was on the shore, a lot of those conversations were very immediate. Um, it was either very practical things or it was just that release of emotion. There was another man who, it's interesting actually, like a lot of the stories are of, of, of the men who um, just kind of like feeling that release of, of emotion. Um, but there was a man who, I think again from Iraq, um, who had come into like the medical caravan um, and a volunteer friend of mine who was a medic um, had asked me to try to like kind of translate to see what was happening what was going on um, and I really couldn't understand what you know I was trying to ask him like what's what's going on he was just sitting um, looking down and I after a while I just looked to my friend and I was like I don't think there is actually anything physically wrong um, he was he was crying actually by that point um, and again this is like you know along the shore when all this people are constantly arriving and it's really like a very busy um climate but then in this medical caravan it's a little bit peaceful and i think you know and, and my medic friend who kind of looked at me she said actually he might just need a space that is quiet um and we should just sit with him and, and it will be all right and and he did he just he just sat and he cried a lot you know looking back on it i think like that was a thing that he couldn't maybe do in front of his family he couldn't let that all of that be visible to his family um, and he maybe just needed a moment to really just like capture everything and just um, release his own emotions um, because of yeah because of everything that had happened. Is there a difference in way you sort of respond or aid internally displaced people versus people coming from across the border? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest difference is, you know, when you're still in your country, you're still a national of that country. Um, when you've crossed an international border, you you are seeking protection from a host country that you're not national of. So, so in terms of protection needs, it's it's quite different. Do you think that makes it easier or harder just for the refugees of getting help? I think in some ways it's easier if you look at language. Um, where I was working in South Sudan, um, some people already had somehow a support network that they could find in where they had arrived to and maybe just like you know more feeling of solidarity within the the area that you know we're going to help you guys out you're like our neighbors but then you know having said that when when once you've lost everything and once you have you know no hope of returning home the idea of home has been changed for you I think those like emotional and psychological struggles can be quite similar like I work in child protection so when you look at the needs of children you know the the same questions arise like where are they going to go to school so how are they going to access education is there a risk of being vulnerable to exploitation or abuse um there's the risk of separation during displacement um so there's you know obviously unaccompanied children um that happens in both contexts um and in the South Sudan context there's also a high risk of, of recruitment into armed forces and armed groups mm -hmm. um so that's also another risk um that, that can be, you know, unique to a conflict setting. Beyond sort of the differences and from the responding point of view, do you find a huge difference in the refugees themselves from one area to another? I guess the different struggles they have or the sort of mentality between all the different places you've been? Um, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, um, people's culture, their lived experience, um, I think there's always differences between every circumstance. And I think the thing that we we often forget when we discuss refugee issues is that it's not homogenous. Yeah, there'll be similarities, but everyone's journey and everyone's um, lived experience is really unique to them. On this side of things, we tend to generalize a lot, but then for somebody going through all of that, it's really their their life and the conceptualization is is quite different. So I think 
in terms of context, every context is different as well. I mean, people flee for, from different types of conflict even. Something that I came to realise was that it's a certain cost incurred. So we're not even seeing like some people who literally have no choice. They just stay, they just have to stay and bear or try to move within the country. Um, and so I think, you know, we tend to forget really that every person is making choices and decisions based on what they, their capacities are. People everywhere are seeking really similar things right like we all as humans like we all look for some safety um, and especially if we have young children you know our, our minds are always on them so every parent will come to you with really similar um, requests or really similar concerns and I think that's what's really striking um, when you speak with parents in different contexts you know it's like the immediate safety of their children and, and the and the futures that they can provide for their children as well um, and for a lot of refugees on the move it's about the kids need a chance basically um, and how to get them into a position of safety and an opportunity for themselves and their futures different decision making processes as well and like um is is going to be different for everyone like you said depending on their capacities what what kind of support networks they have what opportunities are available what was the hardest place for you personally to see and witness um in a lot of ways the european context is the hardest to watch i can understand now what it feels like to feel partly responsible i think every european person feels somehow more attached to what has been happening um, in the European countries over the last few years. And so I think, you know, although the work in South Sudan was physically very challenging, and I think watching the landscape change in Europe, the political will to um, welcome refugees has been one of the hardest. And just that I was in Greece when the deal was made between EU and Turkey, um, and you could just feel a shift in terms of hope. And I think the thing that a lot of people came to European shores with was was hope for something better, and um, because you know Europe aspires to such high ideals of human rights and and you know protection for those who need, and so I think there was so much hope that people had, and then watching that change, and then watching people being forced to stay in camps for for years actually, and and you know when I started working in those camps, it was really difficult to emotionally come to terms with the fact that this is what it's turned into and it's still difficult today in Greece you know to come to terms with the idea that this is Europe now in in African context and in other um, parts of the world where, where we talk about refugee numbers that we talk about hundreds of thousands sometimes and in and in Bangladesh as well there's there's 800,000 um, refugees but what's hardest for me is to look at the relatively few the few numbers of refugees that we have on european soil and see how we're actually treating these people um, and what conditions we're asking them or forcing them to live in while covid19 certainly brought its own challenges into our worlds this year it's hit the refugee community especially hard over quarantine, Alia was able to work with refugee settlements on how they'd address the pandemic from within. One of them being Cox's Bazaar, a several hundred thousand populated camp in Bangladesh. protection team within my organization um, who are in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh um, and they work with um, children and families um, 
that are displaced from Myanmar, so Rohingya population. Um, so there are about 800,000 Rohingya um, currently um, in Bangladesh in, in camps um, in very, very harsh conditions. This is one example of a refugee situation where it's a very precarious situation. They don't have recognition as refugees. They're essentially stateless and they are obviously supported by UNHCR um, and, and a whole network of INGOs that operate there. There is huge insecurity for them. Typically in child protection and emergencies, cases will be referred where a child has either is either at risk of or has been um, exposed to some violence or abuse. Um, and so we work with children maybe at risk of exploitation, um, at risk of trafficking or who have faced some kind of gender or sexual and gender based violence or who might be unaccompanied and vulnerable for that reason. So there's a different re number of reasons why our team would work with them. The, the team was facing a lot of difficulties in terms of access, so it was even difficult to really get permission to go and visit the children and their families. Um, but I think one of the situations that was emerging was that um, there'd be a lot of separation. Um, we would advocate that the community and we try to support the community around to see if there's a family-based care option, um, because that's what we promote, a, a family-based care option for such children um, and so you know it's it's a really complicated um, context there's a lot of um, nuance there about um, how best to support children because the community is so vulnerable themselves and the camps are so fragile um, unfortunately during the pandemic as well it's also been monsoon season um, and so the rains start and and this happens every year but in a in a pandemic when there's even less presence of help on the ground um, the rain started and, and a few of the families that were working with their houses would collapse basically because of the rain. You're in a situation there where the basic needs are not even adequately covered. Um, so how can you even begin to, to talk about any, anything else really? And when these doctors and health professionals are talking to the refugees about the virus or about steps they could take to help flatten the curve, are people listening and can they even listen to these safety protocols um, in such a dense and cramped space? I mean, a lot of the measures we take at home, such as social distancing, would be practically impossible in such a populated area. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think the lockdown measures globally have really shown us that not everyone is equal and we don't all have the same uh, living conditions and so you know how can we put the same kind of distancing expectation that we um, expect from ourselves on on a population that really lives in such precarious conditions one family next to another and a family sharing one room I mean that's what it comes down to and so I know that there are a lot of um, teams giving out extra hygiene equipment to have increased um, hand washing and hygiene practices um, because the, the distancing is just you cannot have the same expectations um, when people live in those in those conditions. Throughout the pandemic, information about the virus has been crucial to easing anxiety and panic. In refugee settlements, the access to this information is scarce, leading to mental stress and increased uncertainty about the future. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's so much about access to information as well. Um, and, you know, we just have to think about our own experiences of the pandemic, you know, how desperate were we for information about what this is and what it means for us and how we can protect ourselves. Um, and there wasn't a lot of information in the Rohingya languages, obviously. So um, at the same time, they, I mean, hardly anybody in that population has a smartphone. But even just like in the camps at the time, there wasn't internet access as well. So if you just imagine though, you know, it just makes it so hard to get accurate information and understand what's happening but I think for people as well there was a lot of like you said a lot of anxiety and fear about what this would mean and and you know if it comes to this camp what will it mean for us and how many I mean what is the health facilities like can they cater for everybody obviously our caseworkers would still want to provide some services and we try to be very careful about wearing protective equipment but then even you know the families might be even scared to to receive that level of support because you're you know you're not supposed to have people arriving to you so I think you know there's there's such a lot of um, anxiety in that situation of the mental stress of just dealing with all these factors on top of each other. How do you think that the pandemic will have an effect and maybe even like a positive effect on you know how refugee camps are structured um, because of all the social distancing protocols? Yeah definitely I think cause for reflection um first of all yeah how do we perceive camps um and my because i work in protection and child protection my perception is it's it's never safe because of all the vulnerabilities and um just the physical space of what a camp is and it's just away from the the normal resources within it within a country as well um but i think yeah it's a real opportunity to for countries to really think like what is an adequate humanitarian standard. I mean, there, there are humanitarian standards to adhere to. It's definitely cause for concern. Um, the amount of camps that are, you know, living conditions that are just not, not acceptable for, for human beings. I think a lot of the news and stories we hear about refugees are often pretty bleak. Do you have any stories of hope that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Um, I actually have two that are really close to my to my heart and I think yeah like you're right it it's, can be so powerful to share um, really inspiring stories. Um, one is back from my time in um, in Lebanon that as I, I think I mentioned previously but um, I was very lucky to work with um, a Syrian community who had who had moved as a community so they had moved pretty much with their kind of neighbors um and we were running like education related programming with them but what i genuinely really appreciate and still to this day they had the skills within them they weren't asking for teachers they weren't asking for um even a curriculum because they had all of that knowledge and they had all of that expertise within them um and so really our part to play was literally just you know helping them fundraise um and building the physical space with them like they they were just so on it from the beginning it was a really big lesson to be like um check you (laughs) check your reality um and and really know your place and know your role it won't always be to do absolutely everything um it will sometimes be a supportive role and a very backseat role and that's really great and that's fine so we ask our guests um, all this one final question. What is one thing you wish more people knew about refugees? Um, I think what I would wish the conversation would be more about 
a longer term or a more holistic view and not just this person at a specific time in their lives um, because I think that's what displacement is it's this thing that has obviously there's a huge um, there's a huge period of your life before leading up to the displacement and there's a huge struggle after but I think I would love it if the conversations could be you know not so concentrated on that small moment of somebody's life um, but to see that person as as a whole um, and not just that one label and I think refugee has become unfortunately a label um, and I think if we could see people and families more like we see people and families in the streets at home that's what I would wish actually. Thank you so much Alia. Thank you for having me I've really enjoyed <laughs> I've really enjoyed speaking about this thank you so much. A huge thank you to Alia for coming on and talking with me today. For more information on refugees and for more episodes of Invisible Borders, visit www.invisibleborders.org. Music is by Callan Pham. Cover art is by Isabella Abradovich. I'm Elena Ahn, and we'll see you in the next episode.